Thank you for blessing us with that today. Please open your Bibles with me to Mark 8. I'm going to be reading verses 27 through 33. This is located on page 977 in your pew Bible, Mark 8. Please stand as we read God's holy word. Starting with verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anything, anyone about him. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. May God bless this passage of his word today. Please have a seat. About 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee lays a city at the foot of Mount Hermon. It's some of the most beautiful country that Israel has to offer. This was Caesarea Philippi, the largely Gentile and pagan city where Herod the Great, the Herod of the Christmas story that we're most familiar with, Herod the Great had built a large temple called the Augustium in honor of his new Roman overlords. And here at Caesarea Philippi, they also had a cave a sacred cave devoted to the god of Pan, that people would come in and they would worship that god as well. But in the temple, in the Augustium, Herod's workers had crafted a statue, not to any one of the, Rome, the gods of the Roman pantheon that you might be familiar with, but rather this statue was to Caesar himself. And once a year, every year, the entire city of Caesarea Philippi would line up and they would process through the temple and when they would see the statue of, of Caesar, they would make a confession. And this confession would be, Caesar Kairos, Caesar is king, Caesar is lord, Caesar is God. And it is to this city that Jesus takes his disciples this week. They arrive after their journey to the foot of this mountain, where they gaze at this temple that's devoted to this God-emperor. And I'm, I think that it must have been so unsettling for this group of devout Jews who had never even thought of coming to such a place on their own to arrive here, to be taken here. Because Caesarea Philippi was the very heart of paganism, superstition, and emperor worship in the region, where the one true God wasn't even spoken of there, but rather they had been cast out of people's lives to make room for made-up idols. It was kind of like if we took our Sunday school class here at Knox to the seediest red-light district in New York City and had them gaze upon all the perversion and corruption that people could invent. 
And even as this city, as Caesarea Philippi, worshipped the emperor, and they confessed that emperor was God, Jesus asked his disciples to make a different kind of confession. So here we come to it at last, the turning point of Mark, the pivotal passage of Mark where the whole gospel changes. Jesus looks here at the stronghold of Satan, and then he throws down a gauntlet by asking a rather simple question. Who am I? Who am I? In the religious schools of the time, it was very standard for the the rabbi to gather all his students around, and the students would learn by asking the rabbi questions about himself and questions about things they wanted to know. So the rabbi would just sit there until he was asked a question, then he would answer, and the students would learn that way. But Jesus kind of flips this script here and starts out by asking his disciples, his learners, questions. Who do people say that I am? That's his first question there. You can see Jesus is starting to lead up to something very important here. And the disciples, they hear that question, they, they're up for it, they're, they're game. So they answer. They put forth the prevailing theories of the day. They've heard the rumors and speculation that that Jesus is somehow John the Baptist, resurrected from the dead. Remember how Herod the Great, or I'm sorry, Herod Antipas is so worried that that's this possibility, that he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Maybe he's Elijah. Remember Elijah taken up to heaven in that flaming chariot? Maybe Elijah's come right back down in spirit and in truth, and he's there now ministering. Or perhaps, they said, the crowd thinks that Jesus is one of these great prophets in the tradition of the Old Testament that Moses predicted from way back when. They don't, however. You, know, you note here that the disciples do not say that Jesus is some of these other rumors that some of his opponents have called him. That Jesus is a blasphemer. That he is a demon-possessed man. That he is an illegitimate son of a carpenter that he's a sinner or a crazy man. In fact, out of the whole crowd, the only consensus is that everybody can agree that Jesus is somebody notable and somebody significant. But as to the conclusion, nobody seems to agree. In fact, even today, you can go out on the street. uh, There's a lot of YouTube videos where people go out with a microphone and they'll ask people on the street, who is Jesus? They'll ask people, and and the, the answers are always, Across the board, nobody can agree. You'll hear answers like this. He's a normal person like us. He's selfless. He was a marketing genius. He was a magician, just like David Copperfield, good with sleight of hand. He was one of many of God's children. He's a messenger. He's a symbol of love. He was a teacher trying to impart wisdom. Different religions, in fact, try to answer this question too. Who is Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? If you talk to a Jehovah's Witness and they come to your door and you ask them who Jesus is, what will the answer be? Not a prophet. He he is Archangel Michael. He's the Archangel Michael. He's an angel. Mormons believe that Jesus is a spirit baby, a spirit child who is born from God the Father and Mary having sex. Um, Hindus believe that Jesus is just one of millions of gods. They're, they're okay with Jesus being part of the gigantic pantheon. 
Muslims will honor Jesus as one of the five greatest messengers of God, but he was no more than a prophet. Many Orthodox Jews, if you really press them on this point, might acknowledge that Jesus, yes, he was a good teacher, but they will stop short from acknowledging that he was the Messiah. And of course, atheists and others will take the stance that either Jesus just never existed, he was a myth, he was something people made up, or he was a normal man who had a legend spring up around him. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people of various faiths who say that fundamentally we all worship and believe the same thing. That Jesus taught the same things as Buddha and Muhammad. There was a religious comedy movie called Dogma that was, came out a long time ago. and It was actually written by a Catholic guy. And in that film, one of the, the supernatural characters made this statement. It's always stuck in my head. Where she said, it doesn't matter what you believe in. Just that you believe. It doesn't matter what you believe in. Just that you believe. That's one of the most nonsensical theological statements I've ever heard in my life, and that was written by a Catholic man. I don't see Jesus at the outskirts of Caesarea Philippi, this pagan city where people would dance naked to the god Pan and proclaim that Caesar is God and then say, yeah, that's basically the same thing as worshiping the Lord God Almighty. I don't see Jesus after hearing this response from the disciples nodding in agreement to what the crowd says about him and says, you know what, they're all right in their own way. We can agree to disagree. What I see here is a Jesus who is driving the line of questioning toward a crucial, clear point of truth. Because unless the people understood who he really was, there was no hope of them ever having a real relationship with him. In other words, you can't deny or misunderstand who Jesus is and have a functional relationship with him. Imagine going up to your mom and saying, you know what, mom, you're really my sister, so I'm going to treat you as my sister. Or going up to your best friend and saying, you're my dog, so I'm going to start, good, good dog, start scratching him behind the ears. You can't misunderstand your relationship with people and really have a functional relationship with them. The people of Caesarea Philippi didn't get it. The crowd didn't get it. The world often doesn't get it when it comes to who he is. But when that happens, when the world mistakes who Jesus is, when they misunderstand his identity, I think that is a prime opportunity for us as Christians to step in and witness to them. Not to, not to argue with them, but to say, you know what, you think Jesus is this, but he's really that. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why he's this. And because he's this, because he's Christ, because he's God, he can save you from this danger you're in. It's just a wonderful opportunity to, for us to share our faith. Four preachers were having lunch together, during which one pastor said that the Bible tells us we should all confess our sins together. So the four pastors agreed that maybe they should do that then. So they each agreed to share one sin with each other. And the, the first pastor who brought up this said, I'll start. He said, there was a Sunday. I told my church I was sick. And they brought in a guest preacher. Really, I was out on the golf course, and I was, I was practicing my swing. 
The second preacher said, okay, it's my turn. I'll confess that I was drinking too much at a party I went to lately and said some things I shouldn't. And the third said, well, last year I lied on my tax return. And then the, they turn, all turned to the fourth pass, and the fourth pass was just, he's a little hesitant. And they pressed him, and he said, we shared our sins. You need to share yours. He said, fine. My sin is that I'm an incorrigible gossip, and I can't wait to get out of here. I think a good confession can really clear up what's been bottled up inside of us. And while we normally think of confessing as like getting our sin out, a confession can also be taking a stand by proclaiming something you know to be true. You're confessing it. So finally we get down to, finally, Pastor Justin, you've been stringing us along for an entire year, driving to this point who Jesus is. And I know I've been drawing this out, but it's so vital to our reading of Mark to understand the moment that we arrive here. It's a climax at the first part of the gospel where Mark's making this argument about who Jesus is. And then he's going to kick off the second section and talk about what Jesus does with that identity. So Jesus turns this question to his disciples and he asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter steps up, he's speaking for all the disciples here, when he says, you are the Messiah. He confesses this. You are the Messiah. In Matthew, he goes on to say, the son of the living God. This right here is an absolute, true confession. It's a confession that doesn't elevate some imaginary being to the level of deity or claim that an emperor somehow has godlike powers. But rather, it is a confession that properly identifies that in Jesus, all of the promises, all of the plans that were in the Old Testament have finally come true in this one person. The blurry vision that we talked about last week that the disciples had is starting to clear up a little bit, isn't it? As Matthew's gospel notes, this clarity came not from Peter suddenly having some sort of growth of wisdom and shrewdness, but rather the Spirit coming into the heart of Peter and giving him this revelation. But it is still a partial understanding. The disciples see here that Jesus is the Christ, but they don't understand what that means, what it means to be the Messiah. You see, the common, misunderstand, or the common understanding at the time was that the Messiah would be somehow a superhuman leader who would overthrow all of Israel's enemies gather up all of the good, faith-believing people, and establish God's reign in this world forever. But they're thinking of it in very human terms here. Still, I don't want to downplay this confession because our faith is a confessional faith, right? We don't hide it, but we proclaim it. Once the Spirit shows you who Jesus is, you must confess it to gain access to the grace that the cross gives and to be drawn into the family of God. Romans 10.9, important verse, you should have this memorized, lays it out as simply as possible, and Paul writes this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see the two parts there? Belief, confession. Two things you have to do to be saved. Believe in your heart, confess it. When we identify, we finally understand 
what the most important thing is in our life. We cannot keep it in, but we have to confess it. It's like what Jeremiah says, it's a, a burning, a fire in my bones. I can't contain it. It has to get out. I have to confess it. Jesus is our word, and he's in our bones. and We have to confess it. We have to face the, the world and say, this, this right here, it's a cross. This right here, this is my Lord and my King. He saved me. He made me. Let me tell you more about him. Let me tell you about what he can do for you. This confession here is just the best thing Peter has ever done in his entire life. So naturally, he turns right around and falls flat on his face. That's so I identify with Peter, don't you? Haven't you ever gone from a spiritual high to just like the low within like the span of a breath? I mean, we've done this so many times. Now that the apostles understand that he is the Messiah, Jesus moves on to teaching them in a whole new level. The word begin here indicates that suddenly he's moving into a deeper level of theology. He's revealing things that they had never heard before. So they're starting to learn. These, these are truths. And this is an exciting time. They're finally, they finally are past Jesus 101, and now they're the, to the Jesus 102 class. And in as plain of a way as possible, Jesus tells them that the Messiah, as Messiah, he's going to suffer, he's going to be rejected, be murdered, and be raised from the dead. And these aren't things that just might happen. What's, what's the word here? I think it's used twice here. It must happen. He says, from the beginning of time, from before the beginning of time, these things were ordained to happen. They must happen so that the Messiah can fill his purpose. And these apostles who had been imagining at this moment, they had confessed that he was Messiah. And Jesus doesn't correct him, but it accepts it. They thought for sure now they were going to turn around and march on Jerusalem. They were going to install Jesus as king. They were going to raise up an army. They were going to kick the Romans out. And God's perfect reign would start forevermore. And then they hear Jesus say these words, and they are stunned. Their mouths are open. They're looking at each other in disbelief. They can't get their minds around this. Their expectation of what the Messiah would do was far different than how Jesus just explained it. I'm going to date myself here, but when I was a kid, our family had one of the very first video game consoles, the Atari 2600. Yeah! Atari 2600. We had that. We grew up with it. It was fine. It was fine in 1977. It was fine when I was a little kid. But by 1985, all of my friends had the new Nintendo. If you ever lived through the 80s, the Nintendo was the hottest thing with kids. Everybody wanted one. And the game everybody was playing was Super Mario Bros. I went over to my friend's house, and I played that. And I, developed, I, I grew the sin of envy right then and there. I wanted that Nintendo. I wanted Super, Nintendo, uh, Super Mario Brothers. And my parents said, would always have this line, no, we already have a video game console. You don't need it. Fine, Mom. Okay, I love you. I'll honor you. I really want it. Okay. And then one day I'm at the store, and it was right before we went on vacation, and I saw Atari 2600 sold Mario Brothers. Now, I was a kid, and I saw that, and I, I said, we got to buy this. I asked my mom and dad. They said, okay, your birthday is coming up. We'll buy this game for you, but you can't open and play it because tomorrow we're going on vacation. 
You can play it when you get back. I spent a week in Florida dying to play this game. And while I was there, and I, I mean, this such crystal clear remembrance, my expectation of what this game would be kept rising, rising. I really thought it was Super Mario Brothers, just a simpler version, like how they sometimes do with video game consoles. Even though the manual told me very plainly it wasn't. It was an older game. Nintendo had first made Mario Brothers, then they made Super Mario Brothers. But my expectations started rising, rising. And then I got home. The first thing I did was I ran to our TV. I turned it on. I turned on my Atari 2600. I jammed that cartridge in. And I was hoping, and suddenly my expectations were dashed to the floor. And it was a really boring game. And I wasted money, and I learned a lesson. I don't know what that lesson was, but I learned it. I had that crushing moment of not getting what I expected, but rather something far worse. And the disciples here are kind of feeling this, the same deflation, where they had expected something grand, and rather Jesus is saying, no, I must die. Not just die, I must suffer and die. And they're crushed. What they don't understand is they're not getting a worse version of the Messiah, but rather a better one. But they're not going to understand that until far later. But for the moment, Peter, speaking again on behalf of the, all the apostles, takes Jesus aside, and with his voice of superiority, he tells Jesus, Jesus, you are the Messiah, but you're getting it wrong. You don't have all the details right, all the facts right. You keep talking like this, Nobody's going to want to follow you. We're all going to leave. And Jesus turns around, and in turn, he rebukes Peter because he correctly identifies that Satan is speaking through Peter's voice. Do you remember when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness? And Satan said, all the kingdoms of the world are mine to give. I could give you the world if you will just do what? Bow to me. Satan was offering Jesus a shortcut to being king. You won't have to die on the cross, Satan said. You won't have to do any of that suffering. Just worship me. And here we have Satan again, speaking through the mouth of one of, one of Jesus' disciples, saying, no, you don't have to suffer. You don't have to die. You can be king without that. Same temptation coming right back again. That he can fulfill his destiny and become some sort of lesser Messiah. The disciples here, they want a Messiah who meets their agendas. They see him as the, the Messiah, yes, but it's a Messiah from a human point of view. And what Jesus is trying to do, trying to correct Peter, is to get him to see it from God's point of view. Because their expectations are wrong. They're facing down a path that will face them right into disillusionment. And that's, in fact, what Judas is going to face later on in the Gospel. There's something far bigger at stake than anything a human Messiah can solve. It's not about Jews reclaiming their lost glory or attaching your wagon to a rising star. It's about lost souls. Lost souls who can only be saved by this Messiah taking on the curse on himself on that cross and making it his own. When we understand who Jesus is, and we establish a relationship with him, the next thing we need to do is realign our priorities to what he wants. 
we should always be asking of ourselves, do our hearts beat for the things of God? Or are we still so concerned with our own comfort and our own agendas? Do we want what God wants? Or do we want what Pastor Justin wants? If our hearts do beat for God, we should never pull him aside and have the conversation Peter just had with Jesus and say, God, you're getting it all wrong in my life. Don't do this. You should be doing something else. You should be answering my prayer in this other way. You should be working through the world in this way. Because when we do that, we're chastising God. And God will just turn around and say, no, my way is a good way. Follow my way. I will lead you in the right way to right places. I will make you satisfied with that. We will all have this conversation Peter had. If you haven't already, you will with God. You'll say, God, do it some other way. And God will say, no, my way is the right way. Our prayer every day should be then, your will, not mine, Lord. Your will. Show me what you want me to do. Show me where you want me to go, and I will follow. Because after all, we don't confess that we follow a good teacher. We don't confess that we follow a misunderstood angel or a guy who said some really quotable things 2,000 years ago. We follow the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he will take you to good places for his glory. Let us confess Jesus this week, not just with our words, but starting with our words, but also with our hearts and our actions. Let's see where that takes us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we confess you. We confess that you are God. Nothing less, nothing less will do. And Lord, as we speak to others in this world who maybe have a different understanding of who you are, help us to be gracious with them. Help us to love them when we correct them, when we stand for who you are, and we say, no, Jesus is Lord. Help us to be bold, help us to be wise, help us to be sincere, and help us to put you first, knowing that, Lord, you will not steer us wrong. And all these things... Amen. Please receive the benediction. And now, Lord, please bless us. Please keep us. May your t- face turn for- toward us and strengthen us in the days to come that we may boldly confess your name in the world. Amen. Go in peace.